Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is David Gurlet, founder and CEO of Symphony Communication Services, a financial services communications company that's helping individuals, teams, and organizations of all sizes improve productivity while meeting security and compliance needs. David is one of the most brilliant minds in the telecom industry. He's an author, inventor, and visionary whose ideas have influenced the major trends in consumer and enterprise communications, and most recently, secure collaboration technologies over the past two decades. Earlier in his career, he founded and ran Microsoft's Unified Communications products, which later became Skype for Business. David also worked at Thomson Reuters as Global Head of Collaboration Services and Head of Sales and Trading Asia. After Microsoft acquired Skype, David left his role as general manager of Skype for Business and founded and later sold Perzo. David sits on the Monetary Authority of Singapore's International Technology Advisory Panel and is a regular contributor to business media outlets. In January of 2020, he received the Légion d'honneur, the highest French order of merit for military and civil service. And now, without further ado, let's listen to a fascinating conversation with the brilliant David Yurle. Thank you, David, and, and we're extremely happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Uh, Miguel, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is David Gurley. I'm the founder and CEO of Symphony. I'm calling you right now from uh, south of France, Valbonne, where we have uh, our largest research and development center. Uh, my background um, is a bit like you, Miguel. I am a third culture kid. I grew up uh, with parents as diplomats uh, in Middle East, which gave me a great perspective of point of views and understanding uh, that there is nothing right and there is nothing wrong. And, uh, and very early on, I had a passion for technology engineering. And uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot. So uh, we'll come to that later. But I ended up being a telecommunications and software engineer and uh, the journey took me eventually to the France my parents retired and then all around the world I moved uh, over 20 times in my life and uh, so I'm definitely uh, the modern nomad of these days fantastic and so you jumped into the communication industry way before symphony do you think you're you're background and your upbringing of moving around the world and having to communicate with several people around the world influenced your career decisions? You couldn't be more right, uh, Miguel. Absolutely did. You know, being the only child of uh, a French and English diplomat uh, made me very quickly realize how important communications are. Uh, and the right way of communicating is among uh, interested parties. Obviously, I never thought that I could go 
and improve our mind uh, to make sure that our intents and that emotions and thoughts are communicated most effectively. But I always felt compelled that um, when we are apart, we should have uh, the right communication capabilities and tools to convey those feelings, those thoughts, those emotions in the most high fidelity way as possible. And that really uh, led me to uh, have my degree in engineering and, uh, and influenced ever since everything that I have done uh, to the date. That makes a lot of sense. And so what was your career path after university and, and what did you study? So I studied um, master's in computer science and telecommunications. So I went for a double, double major, which felt very compelling to me because I couldn't see a communication system without the computing and processing at, at one end. And I couldn't see a computer without communication uh, on the other hand. So for me, bringing these two worlds made really sense. And that was, I think, uh, very convenient and, and a very useful for me because I was a software engineer who really understood networking and telecommunications. And that gave me an incredible perspective of how complex uh, the systems that we need to put in place to, to make us actually have this very conversation we are having right now. And, uh, and from there, I was able to uh, go into, I would say, the, the right organizations uh, so that I could hone my skills. Great. Can you tell us a little bit more about these organizations? Uh, what were the influences that they had on you? I, I know that you spent some time at, at Microsoft, at Skype, uh, obviously, well, very well-known companies and, and very well-regarded brands. Uh, how was it from within? I always... I crafted my career. I, I'm, I've never been the guy who did his work and then got hired. I always went to the companies that I wanted to work for with a very, very, I would say, defined purpose. And uh, I wanted, I started my career at Fast Telecom, which is now Orange. And the reason I went there is because at that time, it was the monopoly of telecommunication. It was a very powerful organization, and I knew I was going to learn a lot. And uh, so that was fantastic. And after that, I went to the um, standardization universe where, you know, you had to interconnect all these information systems with each other. And uh, there was a company named Etsy, uh, European Telecommunication Science Institute. So all mobile phone technologies come from there, as a matter of fact. And that really uh, helped me to understand the broader picture. And, and that was something I really wanted to do. And then, you know, I realized that uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur one day. So uh, I had the opportunity uh, to go to Israel. And I spent uh, a year and a half in Israel uh, in, a, in a high-tech startup, which was an incredible experience. From there, I realized that in order to get voice over IP, which eventually turned into Skype, as, uh, as we know, I need to go to Microsoft because Microsoft owned at that time uh, the computers uh, through their operating system. And it was important for Microsoft to understand and to implement the right software. And I was blessed to, uh, to be accepted to work for Microsoft. And that gave me an incredible distribution capability of my ideas um, to hundreds of millions of, of users that kind of laid the foundation for real-time communications of uh, as we experience today. And then eventually, I ended up at Skype, which obviously uh, got acquired then by Microsoft, my, by the, the team that I used to run at Microsoft. And uh, eventually, we, this all led to Symfony. 
That's interesting. Uh, could you have envisioned your same team at Microsoft eventually acquiring your your you know your your other uh, employer after a few years? Not at all. Uh, you know, we were at war at micro, with Microsoft. Let's be clear. You know, we were competing with Microsoft, and uh, Microsoft had at that time MSN Live Messenger, which they eventually just named Live Messenger, and Skype had Skype. And so, you know, we, we never thought that um, the Microsoft team will even, you know, approach us to be, to be interested uh, having a conversation with us. But, uh, you know, it happened, and uh, it was really easy. Uh, because obviously I knew the uh, cast of Microsoft. I knew the cast of Skype. So uh, obviously it was a team on both sides who were in negotiations for many, many months. The familiarity, obviously, of uh, our relationships helped a lot uh, to smooth the process. Got it. Now, obviously, these were very well-respected brands and top places to work at. Was there something also about the internal corporate culture that attracted you to these companies? Microsoft, yes. The others, I didn't really know. You know, when I, I went to France Telecom, for me, it was all about, okay, you know, they own an end-to-end telecommunication value chain, so it would be good to understand through their knowledge uh, and gain experience. So I didn't even know what the culture was. You know, when you're out of college, you know, all you are looking for is, oh my God, I'm going to be free. I'm going to have my money. I'm going to be away from home. And, uh, and so that was the culture I was looking for. Over time, obviously, I start realizing um, that the culture matters a lot. Actually, it's the most important thing. And uh, and I'm a very competitive person, first with myself, and then obviously with whoever wants to compete with me. So I'm never shy of going into uh, to the field and playing the field. And uh, I always heard that Microsoft is a very competitive organization. And I just wanted to go there to play there just to see how good I was. And so that was very attractive for me. Um, you know, after that, culture wasn't as determinate in my choices more than the experience that I was going to accumulate to eventually become a well-rounded executive. Uh, and so I didn't pay attention to it because I wasn't ever considering to have the rest of my life in that company. For me, it was you know like an internship, and I was just going to go and 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 learn for a few years what I need to learn before I move to the next thing. But uh, certainly for Microsoft, it was an important uh, step in my career in terms of uh, this competitive culture that they had. So tell us about the early days when you started considering uh, the possibility of launching Symphony. Was it a, a jump directly from Skype? Was there some time in between? How did that process work for you? You know, I've always been an entrepreneur. So... This is kind of, uh, you know, a free electron guy in a large organization who always comes up with his own ideas. I still remember the first manager that with whom I had my review. He told me, David, you know, you are great, but you are unmanageable. And so I think that that stuck with me. And so I knew that at one day I need to have the courage and the risk uh, mindset to do it on my own as opposed to within the realm of a large organization. And so in the early days after Skype, I decided not to continue at Microsoft. I did not want to go back to Microsoft. I did what I need to do there. And uh, I knew it was time for me to, uh, to do it on my own, fly with my own wings. 
And uh, I got inspired uh, by a number of events as well as my background uh, to start Symphony. Got it. And how did you assemble the initial team? And how did you approach uh, finding a specific problem to solve? Let's start with the latter part of your question. The problem. So I knew I wanted to do a startup on my own. I was in Silicon Valley, so in my, now everything was aligned. Then I start figuring out what is it I want to do. And, and it, go, it boils down to what I know and what my experience is. And then I looked at, okay, I've been building these software products and it's been used by millions of people now. You know, the question is that, is there still pain points that need to be addressed? And if so, do I have the knowledge and skills and the courage to do it? I realized that um, we were still in the beginning of that, uh, I would say, real-time communication experience and that there were things that I could bring to the market that others may not thought about or, or maybe they will be uh, not executing properly. So that's how I have identified the problem of uh, secure communication. Secure persistent communications would be the best way. Today, we use Slack, but that's literally what Slack is, is secure persistent communications. And, uh, and from there, I was able to validate the idea by uh, basically um, testing it with few people that I knew in the industry. And I'll be honest with you, I was hoping they would say no, that it's a stupid idea that I shouldn't try. Uh, so this way, you know, I would have said, oh, you see, you know, I'm not just ready for doing this company on my own. But no, they felt the idea was compelling. And uh, that's how it all started. Then the team was the hardest thing to assemble. You know, when you have no money to begin with, and you're going to have to start everything from scratch, who is the right person? Who are you going to trust? Or will they trust you? So it was really, really hard. Obviously, uh, we made the right choices. But uh, I can tell you that um, I struggled with it uh, for the first six months. I'm guessing you relied on some of your past colleagues, uh, but what were all some of your other strategies to recruit this team? I definitely did, but it, it, it a little bit later stage, Miguel. I, I originally was kind of afraid of uh, disappointing them. You know, uh, I I worked with them in the past. You know, we had built things together, and uh, and here. Here I was coming with a completely new idea with no funding, no leg, you know, who knew it was going to be successful. I was afraid of disappointing them. I was afraid of failing them. Uh, you know, what if I were to bring them to this startup and we fail and, you know, I will jeopardize, uh, you know, their, their well-being. So I waited until I knew that I wouldn't be in that position. And then I could, and then I went with a vengeance after my, my network. And, uh, and that was obviously, that proved to be the right strategy. In the beginning, I, I went to people that I didn't know. That's why it was so hard, uh, because the trust factor doesn't exist. The knowledge factor doesn't exist. And so you have to pretty much start from scratch, not only the product, the concept, but also the relationships um, uh, among the people who are going to build that. And, and together, that was really tough. Understood. Let's talk a little bit about your entry market strategy now your product is widely supported and used by the financial sector particularly uh, large banks not only are they users 
but they are also investors, right? Was this a strategy that you devised from the onset? Yes. So, um, you know, when when you are in the universe of telecommunications, um, you understand very quickly that network effect is what matters the most. And, you know, during the era of uh, fax machines, uh, we used to say, you know, one fax machine value is equal to zero, but 10,000 fax machines uh, value is 10,000 times 10,000, which brings us to Metcalfe's law. And so if I was going to build a communication product, I needed to find a way to build a network. And I need to make sure that A, it will go and grow fast and B, that um, I will reduce the time it takes to build it. So there were different options. One is to build a consumer one. And I, I didn't feel compelled uh, to build a consumer product. I, I knew the enterprise market uh, better. And then in the enterprise market, uh, there was really no network of enterprise customers. There's no Facebook for enterprise. I mean, you know, there's, there's no LinkedIn for enterprise. You know, LinkedIn is for you and me individually, but not for an enterprise. So there are no, there is no, network of enterprises in other words so that's what i felt to be the um, key area for me to focus on obviously you need to understand the requirements of that etc and then which sector was the next big question and, uh, and i knew financial services because i, I worked for thomson reuters for about seven years and that gave me the insider view of how that market works and I realized that I will not be successful unless I bring to the table all the large financial institutions, not only as a customer, but also as an investor, play the field and, and grow the business, grow the maturity of the product, grow the team, you know, until you arrive to a point of uh, no return. And that's how the strategy was put forward. And honestly, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't chosen that path, because it's a the, the barrier to entry in financial services is extremely high, you know, very long sales cycles that uh, could not have been addressed if we didn't have the resources and the backing that we have. Yeah, you've kind of answered my next question, which is going to be about getting inside a bank as a vendor is extremely hard. And, and it's obviously even harder as a startup, right? How were those initial conversations and, and why do you think you were successful as an early stage company? Here's, here's a funny anecdote for you, Miguel. So the first customer we tried to go to was Goldman Sachs. I mean, you know, out of all, you felt very Start compelled. from the top. From the top, yeah. And, um, and I knew that, you know, if you, were to, if you were able to convince Goldman Sachs, we could convince uh, many others because they are, they are one of the top leaders in this, uh, in this industry. So when I went to Goldman Sachs and presented what we were doing, the the chief uh, security officer, CSO, and the CISO of Goldman Sachs were there. And they looked at me and I said, is your solution in the cloud? I said, yeah, it's in the cloud. And then I said, okay, David, you know, I don't want to sound too negative, but over our dead body, we'll deploy anything in the cloud that is so mission critical as our communication infrastructure. And I... (laughs) And I said, okay, please stay alive and healthy. But I think there is a way in which we can make you comfortable and happy and richer by taking your communication director away from your own 
hands and putting in the cloud and letting it run by us. And so it took me like about six months, obviously, to convince them that they don't have to be killed in order to deploy uh, a solution like Symfony. And they have become, you know, our biggest uh, invest, one of our biggest investors and, and one of our biggest you know, advisors and partners ever since. But it wasn't easy. I mean, every bank sometimes took us two years to convince an institution, even though they were an investor. Six months and no dead bodies. That's that's quite a good result. Uh, so, you know, your product has probably become more relevant than ever in the last two, three months now that we're undergoing this uh, major crisis. You know, let's talk a little bit how you, know, you evolved over time and also what has been your experience uh, very recently, because uh, I know that you've uh, been experiencing some fantastic growth. Indeed. To set the context right, we have to understand how this market works. You know, when you're selling an enterprise software, whether it is running inside a corporation or outside in a public cloud offered as a SaaS service, you are not in the freemium model like Zoom or Slack or other players like, you know, like Dropbox. You are actually selling to very discriminating buyers and who are basically going to tell you that if you don't do this, come and even, don't even come and talk to me. And then even if you do it, you know, I'm going to take my sweet time to go and buy and deploy your product. Our uh, sales cycle uh, is about 360 days on average. So it takes from inception to selling. And then another six months before they deploy the first instance of Symfony to an end user, even though it's a fully cloud solution. So you can see that there is a significant uh, latency uh, and, and friction to, to do this. Why I'm saying all this? Well, the consequence of all that is that you have a very linear growth. You never see the exponential nature uh, that the hockey stick that curves that you see in, uh, in network effect businesses on the consumer universe. So it was uh, pretty much like that for us all the way to March. You know, we were growing a, a nice 40% year on year. And uh, in this market is exceptional. Uh, but we were not seeing, you know, the 300, 400% growth that, you know, others are seeing, obviously, uh, when they are selling their, when they have reached this critical mass from which network effect kicks in. But in March, everything changed. We somehow were ready. Uh, first of all, the product was ready. Second, the infrastructure was ready. Third, the performance was ready. So. All of the stars were aligned and we had no idea what was going to hit us. We were just still projecting the same type of growth, which was very predictable. You know, the epsilon of our forecast is like one and a half percent, plus or minus. Just to tell you how well we knew, you know, our, our business. But then, pow, it tripled by, you know, 300 percent. It's tripled. We've never seen it. I was like looking at the numbers and I was saying, you know, is this something wrong? You know, are we are we counting, double counting, triple counting what, what we are recording here? No, what happened was we were ready at the right time and our customers were ready at the right time. Uh, you know, it's an unfortunate event that uh, COVID-19 happened, obviously. But uh, through those uh, turbulent times, uh, we really emerged as uh, the top mission critical application that uh, our customers uh, need and, and care about. Yeah, and, and I understand that, for example, cyber crimes are on the rise, particularly during during these times. 
I imagine, you know, it's the same for online fraud, criminality. It really underscores the importance of, of Symphony, right? Because this is something you are tackling head on. Uh, can you talk yep. about some of your features to help prevent uh, online fraud and criminality? You know, the, the, uh, the security chain is an extremely important, I'm going to say, value chain. You cannot just address one element and hoping that the rest is uh, is going to stand on its own. So everything is kind of linked. And you remember when we talked about what Symphony is, is this federated network of companies. And it's kind of United Nations of, in this case, it's United Companies uh, in financial services. And you can only achieve that if you put the right um, gates for protecting the data integrity, the identity, and obviously uh, putting the right uh, rules for compliance uh, to the regulations that these companies have to obey. So we started with authentication, you know, KYC. Are you onboarding, you know, anybody or you are only onboarding people who are being authenticated, verified, um, you know, by the right authorities to be who they are? And that authenticity is where the security chain starts. And then, you know, the links that um, bring those people, connect those people and entities together and need to have uh, flawless uh, security capabilities, which uh, we've invented. You know, you need to make sure that nobody, including ourselves, uh, can access those infrastructure elements. And without, you know, even if we had any malicious person, even our organization, uh, you know, they cannot read our customers' data. So. That means that you have to build a no trust system, which is like, don't trust anybody, especially yourself, um, and build the framework and technology and process around that. And so uh, when we built that, we were able to basically push the, the trust zone to where the data resides, which is in our customers. So that made a whole difference between Symfony and any other solution. Because in, in another solution like Microsoft or Slack or Zoom, you have to trust them with your data. You have to trust them that they will not do something wrong. And we don't think that's safe because even if you do your best to, to, to build a trustworthy organization, you can make mistakes. There are stakes sometimes in which rogue governments can come and attack your organization without you knowing anything about that. So for all of those reasons, um, we built this true end-to-end -end encryption. And what it means is that we never process any data that belongs to any of the users within our customers in the cloud. Thanks to that unique, exclusive uh, capability of Symfony, anybody who can access to the cloud will not be able to see the data that's been exchanged among the parties whether that data is messages, files, video streams, audio streams, whatever it is. And that creates, I would say, the most secure infrastructure um, by no means that it is an impenetrable one because you can never be sure you know, in, the, in the face of technology and internet, but it is the most secure. And that's how we've been able to protect our customers to the state and, um, and, and why, you know, uh, we've been able to, uh, to stand high on the ground of, uh, you know, competitive pressure that we've seen from even very large players like Microsoft. Fascinating. Uh, talking a little bit about uh, encryption and 
security. Obviously, multiple governments around the world, for, for a number of reasons, uh, have had this conversation with companies. You know, Apple obviously comes to mind. Have you had some of these conversations, you know, around you know, maybe uh, accessing some of this data? And, and, you know, how do you manage this balance? We have. And I really think that Apple is doing the wrong way. And I've even expressed that my view in um, in a column I, I've written. Look, I'm going to take it to your personal world, Miguel. You probably live in a house or an apartment. Am I correct? Yes, correct. You have a door? Absolutely. Do you have a key to this door? I do. Okay. Who Who owns that key? Is it you or is it like the company that you are using the apartment for? I guess I just have a copy and they own it. Okay. So you have a copy, right? <clears throat> if they were to go and break into your apartment without your knowledge, will they violate the law? Hard to tell. They would because it is your property, right? Whatever is behind that door is your property and you have a contract, a legal contract, and etc that protects you and you have a key to protect that. Well, I found it very odd that what we have in our analog world doesn't exist in our digital environment, okay? So in the digital environment, we have all of our assets in this digital form that is either locked in in a computer or in a phone, in the form of a computer, but the encryption keys are not your property. And, and that, I think, is a fundamentally wrong system. And if we had the equivalent of that key that you have to go to your apartment available to you, then what is really possible is that since you own that key, first of all, you can give the key to me if you wanted to, if you trust me. If I need to water your plant while you are going on vacation two weeks in Bolivia, okay? Or you have a cat that you need to be taken care of, you know, during the day. You cannot do any of those things today in this digital world. In the, what I call, this hypocrisy of uh, protecting you, Apple does not give you the option to own your encryption key and manage your encryption key for all of your content, for all of your assets that really define you these days in 21st century. And they say that, you know, for the benefit of your protection, they are actually going to even prevent the access of that data to anybody else but you. And that, I think, is violating your very much your individual rights. And then it's also creating a huge problem with the law enforcement. And because law enforcement is what keeps our society stable. And we need to have mechanisms for those people to have access to the information. And today, somebody can subpoena you, you know, issue a warrant and come to your apartment to see whether you are doing something malicious. Well, I do not see why this cannot be replicated into the digital universe. As long as you own your key, you are legally responsible for that and everybody trusts you for this. So... That's been my opinion from the very early days. And that's the reason why at Symfony, we do not own any encryption key. We do not manage any encryption key. 
we let our customers to build their encryption keys, manage it, rotate it, delete it, whatever the hell they want with it. It's theirs. In the same way as the key to your apartment is yours. Obviously, I had a number of conversations about that, um, but I never wanted to go for what I will call a big fight because it's a very, I would say, toxic political environment because uh, you have all these people on one hand and who are going to be very extremist of, I want to control everything, I want to monitor everything. <laughs> and you have the exact opposite of those, you know, everything should be entirely protected and 100% private and neither are right. That's not how society works. There's always a compromise in society. And those parties are not willing to do the compromise today. And, uh, and I didn't want to meddle into that battle, but that doesn't prevent me from having my opinions, of course. Very interesting. And let's talk a little bit about the world post-COVID that you envision. Obviously, you know, hopefully we'll go back to uh, some level of normality and you know, maybe your growth won't uh, you know, be at the 300% levels that, that you've been seeing. How do you envision banks and then your customers eventually going back? And do you think you will experience some attrition? I think they want to go back, and so am I, and I think I'm sure that so are many other people. But uh, it's going to be a different new normal, and that difference is going to have more flexibility in the way we work. And I think that's the biggest takeaway. And it's not like everybody will work from home, but some people or most people will be able to work from home some from some time to time. And in that new reality, we're going to have our own uh, position. I don't think we're going to grow another 300% post-COVID, but I don't see neither us uh, going back to the level of where we were. Um, you know, you can always expect a bit of attrition, but I do not see it at this stage because you know, people develop habits. And, and if your product uh, is beneficial to their use cases, then, then you know, why they should switch. So we will obviously continue to fight for, uh, for that longevity. And people now have uh, come to expect uh, from their organizations that degree of flexibility, which uh, I think is good for humanity. And, uh, you know, it has a number of benefits, uh, which uh, I believe uh, will make our organizations we serve uh, way more productive than before because they will have happier employees. On this flexibility point, are you and, and the executive team at, at Symphony implementing new uh, rules for a more flexible type of uh, commuting? Yes, we will. And we are, and we will. I mean, we are still all working from home. Um, you know, we haven't developed a full policy yet, but, you know, I tell you what my ideal is, and obviously I need to make sure that, you know, the, the managers and, and executives are all aligned with that, that, you know, if you want to work from uh, anywhere in the world for Symphony, you should be able to do so. Uh, you know, as long as it makes sense, you know, from a time zone or, or from your personal uh, lifestyle point of view. In the past, we had a very, I would say, not strict, but relatively uh, strong policy that we want everybody to be located in the same location because there are a number of benefits for that. But, you know, we have been the most productive on the last three months that we've ever been. 
and uh, and and maybe we should learn a lesson or two from that. We will, and I don't want to do like a, a top-down decision. I want to make sure that the organization uh, feels what's the right balance, and uh, and with that, you'll uh, change. It will be different. How about on the business front? How do you envision the road ahead for Symphony? First of all, I hope I can see our customers face to face again. Uh, the you know I, I used to travel two hundred and seventy days a year, so you, so you can imagine that uh, you know I certainly had a cabin fever these days, running very high. I think the business uh, for us is booming, not because we are providing only the communication infrastructure in these difficult times for our customers, but also that communication infrastructure is bringing a, a slew of innovations to. To, to them as it's a platform as well. You know, we, we connect people with programs and programs with programs and, uh, and it's all trusted. So, so suddenly, you know, you have this compound effect that comes and uh, people are now building solutions. There is more than thousand applications that people have built our symphony, which is, you know, as much as we have increased our uh, number of users, we've also increased our number of chatbots uh, that our customers have built. That is going to continue because the compound effect, the momentum that has been built creates uh, now its own wind, its own tailwind. So we will see uh, more solutions coming from our customers. We will see more B2B to B2C use cases. And our customers are never shy of uh, letting us know what new chapters they want us to open. And we are working on that with them already on a number of initiatives. So... uh, all I can tell you that it's very exciting, but it's very busy and uh, and fun at the same time. David, we have uh, quite a few listeners who are either current entrepreneurs or also aspiring founders. You have the unique position where you've been an executive at established companies, but now you're also an entrepreneur. Uh, do you have some reflections on you know taking the the jump and launching your own company? Oh, of course I do. Um, I think if you have a dream, you have the courage and the means to pursue it, just go for it. Um, even if it ends up being not as successful as you dreamed about, it is still worth it because you are truly putting yourself in the field. And it's you, your person, your character, your strengths and weaknesses, you know, your network, your ecosystem, your knowledge, your experience. I think there is no better way for human race to make progress in that without exposing yourself to reality. And that reality hits you very fast when you're an entrepreneur. You just can't hide behind a rock. You can't go you know, into a cave and hope that it will pass. You have to face it. So I think from a personal development, it's one of the best ways. I mean, you know, imagine that if you are a competitive runner and you are just running against yourself versus, you know, you try to uh, to go from uh, your league all the way to Olympics. You know, that's kind of the same thing here. And and having this opportunity to test yourself and grow with it is, is an incredible adventure, well worth the modern adventure of, of human race. What it takes to be successful? First of all, you have to define what success is. It's, it's a different thing for different people. Um, and it's unfortunately moving target. Uh, I can tell you by experience. You need to be kind of stubborn, a little bit of uh, your own ideas, but not too much 
that uh, you don't listen. Uh, you need to have a good dose of optimism, but uh, you know, realism works better. You need to uh, be super resourceful. Um, you know, it's like a castaway in, with Tom Hanks uh, and he gets stranded in this island. You know, he was resourceful, he survived. And, uh, and, and resourcefulness for an entrepreneur is one of the key assets. You need to be a good people person because it's not the ideas that make the business, it's the people. So you need to have your interpersonal skills uh, good enough that uh, you can attract people, you can sell to people, you can attract investors. And you need to be a bit lucky uh, because uh, luck plays, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, in this world. Um, you know, I think the, the fortune favors the bold is a very, very important uh, saying. And, then, and I've seen it uh, being true many, many times over the course of my years of as an entrepreneur. So uh, I hope that uh, this inspires people. Um, you know, people say, don't ever give up. Uh, it's okay to give up. It's okay to admit failure as long as you learn from it and you take it as a lesson. You can't win all competitions, right? Nobody ever does it. Uh, Roger Federer doesn't win all the you know, Grand Slams. You know like he is the greatest tennis player of all time. But when he fails, you know, yes, he uh, he's angry and he analyzes his game and and he's even more motivated for the next time. So think about it this way, and um, and seek advice. You don't know it all, and um, it's always good to learn from others whenever you have the opportunity to do so. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, thank you, David. Before we go, one last question. You mentioned uh, your childhood dream to become a pilot. Did you ever achieve this dream? Uh, Miguel, I did. Uh, I took, uh, after uh, we sold Skype to Microsoft, six months old. Six months. Uh, and uh, the first time ever I took time off and I went to a flight school in Palo Alto. Uh, and I said, you know, can I learn to fly? Of course you can. I said, okay, I'm in. So yeah, I, I learned to fly uh, all the way to professional pilot. And I had the pleasure of accomplishing my childhood dream and also learning a lot from uh, from being a pilot. There are just so many common themes that you see as a pilot, as that you see as a business leader. It's been a great experience. I highly encourage anybody who has even the slightest dream of flying to go out for a try. You know, it's, it will teach you a lot, if not for a kind of, uh, fighting your fear of flying because sometimes uh, you might be fearful of that. I was, I can tell you before, but uh, it's over now. Excellent. Well, David, this has been a treat for myself and every other listener. So we do appreciate you coming here. And once this is all over, we'd love to see you on campus. It will be my pleasure, Miguel. And thanks a lot. Uh, and I wish you all uh, lucky, successful, uh, obviously a healthy future. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.